Chapter Three of the Black Moth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. The Black Moth by Georgette Hare. Chapter Three. Introducing the Honorable Richard Carstairs. Wincham, a stately old house with mullioned windows standing high on its stone terraces, half covered by creepers. A house surrounded by lawns, rolling down on the one side to a river that rippled and murmured its way along beneath overhanging trees and a blue sky, over boulders and rocks so clear and sparkling that the myriad pebbles could be seen deep down on its bed. In the other direction, the velvet lawns stretched away till they met the orchards and the quiet meadowland. On two sides the house had its terraces, very white in the sunshine, with stone steps leading down to a miniature lake, where water-lilies grew, and where the tiny fish darted to and fro unconcernedly. Flagged walks there were, running between flower-beds a riot of color, and solemn old trees that had stood there through all the years. Cool woodland lay beyond the little river, carpeted with dark moss, where in spring the primroses grew. So thick was the foliage of the trees that the sun but penetrated in uneven patches. Up the terrace walls crept roses, yellow and red, pink and white, and tossed their trailing sprays across the parapet. Over the walls of the house they climbed, mingling with purple clematis, jasmine, and sickly honeysuckle. The air was heavy with their united perfumes, while wafted from a bed below came the smoky scent of lavender. The old house seemed half asleep, basking in the sunlight. Save for a peacock preening its feathers on the terrace steps, there was no sign of life. The old place had harbored generations of Carstairs. Earl had succeeded Earl and reigned supreme, and it was only now that there was no Earl living there. No one knew where he was. Scarce a month ago one died, but the eldest son was not there to take his place. For six years he had been absent, and none dared breathe his name, for he disgraced that name, and the old earl cast him off and forbid all mention of him. But the poor folk of the countryside remembered him. They would tell one another tales of his reckless courage, his sweet smile and his winning ways, his light-heartedness and his never-failing kindness and good humor. What a rider he was! to see him sit a horse. What a swordsman! Do you mind the time he fought young Mr. Welsh over yonder in the spinney with half the countryside watching? Ah, he was a one, was Master Jack. Do you mind how he knocked the sword clean out of Mr. Welsh's hand and then stood waiting for him to pick it up? And do you mind the way his eyes sparkled and how he laughed just for the sheer joy of living? Endless anecdotes would they tell, and the old gaffers would shake their heads and sigh, and long for the sight of him again, and they would jerk their thumbs towards the manor, and shrug their old shoulders significantly. Who wanted Mr. Richard for squire? Not they, at least. They knew he was a good squire, and a kindly man, but give them Master John, who would laugh and crack a joke, and never wear the glum looks that Mr. Richard affected. In the house, Richard Carstairs paced to and fro in his library, every now and again pausing to glance wretchedly up at the portrait of his brother hanging over his desk. 
The artist had managed to catch the expression of those blue eyes, and they smiled down at Richard in just the way that John was always wont to smile, so gaily, and withal so wistfully. Richard was twenty-nine, but already he looked twice his age. He was very thin, and there were deep lines on his good-looking countenance. His grey eyes bore a haunted, careworn look, and his mouth, though well-shaped, was curiously lacking in determination. He was dressed soberly, and without that touch of smartness that had characterized him six years ago. He wore black in memory of his father, and it may have been that severity, only relieved by the lace at his throat, that made his face appear so prematurely aged. There was none of his brother's boyishness about him. Even his smile seemed forced and tired, and his laughter rarely held merriment. He pulled out his chronometer, comparing it with the clock on the mantelpiece. His pacing took him to the door, and almost nervously he pulled it open, listening. No sound came to his ears. Back again, to and fro, across the room, eagerly awaiting the clanging of a bell. It did not come. But presently a footfall sounded on the passage without, and someone knocked at the door. In two strides Richard was by it, and had flung it wide. Warburton stood there. Richard caught his hand. Warburton, at last! I've been waiting this hour and more. Mr. Warburton disengaged himself, bowing. I regret I was not able to come before, sir, he said primly. I make no doubt you travelled back as quickly as possible. Come in, sir. He led the lawyer into the room and shut the door. Sit down, Warburton, sit down. You, you found my brother? Again, Warburton bowed. I had the felicity of seeing his lordship, sir. He was well, in good spirits. You thought him changed, Jess? Aged, perhaps, or— His lordship was not greatly changed, sir. Richard almost stamped in his impatience. Come, Warburton, come. Tell me everything. What did he say? Will he take the revenues? Will he— His lordship, sir, was reluctant to take anything, but upon maturer consideration— he, uh, consented to accept his elder son's portion. The revenues of the estate he begs you will make use of. Ah, but you told him that I would touch not belonging to him? I tried to persuade his lordship, sir, to no avail. He desires you to use Wencham as you will. I'll not touch his money. Warburton gave the faintest of shrugs. That is as you please, sir. Something in the suave voice made Richard— from his stand by the desk glanced sharply down at the lawyer. Suspicion flashed in his eyes. He seemed about to speak when Warburton continued. "'I believe I may set your mind at rest on one school, Mr. Carstairs. His lordship's situation is tolerably comfortable. He has ample means.' "'But—but he lives by robbery!' Warburton's thin lips curled a little. "'Does he not?' persisted Carstairs. "'So he would have us believe, sir.' "'Tis true. He waylaid me.' "'And robbed you, sir?' "'Robbed me? He could not rob his own brother, Warburton.' "'Your pardon, Mr. Carstairs. You are right. His lordship could not rob a brother, yet have I known a man do such a thing.' For a long minute there was no word spoken. The suspicion that had dwelt latent in Carstairs' eyes sprang up again. Some of the colour drained from his cheeks, and twice he passed his tongue between his lips. The fingers of his hand, gripping a chair-back, opened and shut spasmodically. 
Rather feverishly, his eyes searched the lawyer's face, questioning. "'John told you. Told you?' He started and floundered hopelessly. "'His lordship told me nothing, sir. He was singularly reticent. But there was nothing he could tell me that I did not already know.' "'What do you mean, Warburton? Why do you look at me like that? Why do you fence with me? In plain words, what do you mean?' Warburton rose, clenching his fists. "'I know you, Master Richard, for what you are.' "'Ah!' Carstairs flung out his hand as if to ward off a blow. Another tense silence. With a great effort Warburton controlled himself, and once more the mask of impassivity seemed to descend upon him. After that one tortured cry, Richard became calm again. He sat down, on his face a look almost of relief, coming after a great strain. "'You learnt the truth from John. He will expose me? No, sir. I have not learnt it from him, and he will never expose you. Richard turned his head. His eyes, filled now with a species of dull pain, looked full into Warburton's. Oh, he said, then you— Nor I, sir. I have pledged my word to his lordship. I would not speak all these years for your father's sake. Now it is for his. He choked. You— are fond of John, still the apathetic, weary voice. Fond of him? Good God, Master Dick, I love him. And I, said Richard very low. He received no reply, and looked up. You don't believe me. Once, sir, I was certain of it. Now? He shrugged. Yes, tis true, Warburton. I would give all in my power to undo that night's work. You cannot expect me to believe that, sir. It rests with you alone whether his name be cleared or not, and you remain silent. Warburton, I—oh, do you think it means nothing to me that John is outcast? Before the misery in those grey eyes, some of Warburton's severity fell away from him. Master Richard, I want to think the best I can of you. Master Jack would tell me nothing. Will you not? Can you not explain how it came that you allowed him to bear the blame of your cheat? Richard shuddered. There's no explanation, no excuse. I forced it on him, on Jack, my brother, because I was mad for love of Lavinia. Oh, my God, the thought of it is driving me crazed. I thought I could forget, and then, and then I meant him. The sight of him brought it all back to me. Ever since that day I've not known how to live and not shriek the truth to everyone. And I never shall. I never shall. Tell me, sir, pleaded Warburton, touched in spite of himself. Richard's head sunk into his hands. The whole scene, it is a nightmare. I think I must have been mad. I scarce knew what I was about. I— Gently, sir. Remember I know hardly anything. What induced you to mark the cards? That debt to Gundry. My father would not meet it. I had to find the money. I could not face the scandal. I tell you I was mad for Lavinia. I could think of naught else. I ceased to care for John because I thought him in love with her. I could not bear to think of the disgrace which would take her from me. Then that night at Dares I was losing. I knew I could not pay. Gad, but I could see my notes of hand under Millwood's elbow growing, growing. Jack had played Millwood before me and he had won. I remember they laughed at him, saying his luck had turned at last. 
for he always lost at cards. Millwood and I played with the same pack that they had used. There was another table, I think. Dare was dicing with Fitzgerald. Someone was playing Pharaoh with Jack behind me. I heard Jack say his luck was out again. I heard them laugh, and all the time I was losing. Losing. The pin of my cravat fell out on my knee. I think no one saw it. As they picked it up, the thought that I should mark the cards seemed to flash into my mind. Oh, it was despicable, I know. I held the ace of clubs in my hand. I scratched it with that pin in one corner. It was easily done. By degrees I marked all four, and three of the kings. No one noticed, but I was nervous. I dared to do no more. I replaced that pin. Soon I began to win, not very much. Then Tracy Belmanwar came across the room to watch our play. From that moment everything seemed to go awry. It was the beginning of the trouble. Tracy stood behind me watching. I could feel him there like some black moth, hovering. I don't know how long he stayed like that. It seemed hours. I could feel his eyes. I could have shrieked. I swear my hands were trembling. Suddenly he moved. I had played the ace of hearts. He said, One moment. In that soft, sinister voice of his, Millwood was surprised. I tried to tell myself that Devil had noticed nothing. The mark on that card was so faint that I could scarce see it myself. I thought it impossible that he, a mere onlooker, should discover it. He stepped forward. I remember he brushed my shoulder. I remember how light caught the diamonds he was wearing. I think my brain was numbed. I could only repeat to myself, Extravagant devil! Extravagant devil! And stare at those winking jewels. Then I thought, He is Lavinia's brother. But I do not like him. I do not like him. Little foolish things like that. And my throat was dry, parched. He bent over the table, stretched out his white, white hand, turned over the ace, lifted his quizzing glass, and stared down at the card. Then he dropped the glass and drew out his snuff-box. It had Aphrodite enameled on the lid. I remember it so distinctly. I heard Tracy ask Millwood to examine the ace. I wanted to spring up and strangle him. I could scarce keep my hands still. Richard paused. He drew his hand across his eyes, shuddering. Millwood saw the scratch. He cried out that the cards were mocked. Suddenly everyone seemed to be gathered about our table, all talking. Jack had his hand on my shoulder. He and Dare were running through the pack. But all the while I could look at no one but Tracy Andover. He seemed so sinister, so threatening in those black clothes of his. His eyes were almost shut his face so white, and he was looking at me. He seemed to be reading my very soul. For an instant I thought he knew. I wanted to shout out that he was wrong. I wanted to shriek to him to take his eyes away. Heaven knows what I should have done, but he looked away, at Jack, with that sneering smile on his damned mask of a face. I could have killed him for that smile. I think Jack understood it. He dropped the cards, staring at Tracy. Everyone was watching them. No one looked at me. 
If they had, they must surely have learnt the truth. But they were hanging on Andover's lips, looking from him to Jack and back again. I remember Fitzgerald dropped his handkerchief. I was absurdly interested in that. I was wondering why he did not pick it up, when Andover spoke again. And Carstairs' luck turned. Like that, Warburton, with just that faint questioning in his voice. Before Jack could speak, there was an outcry. Dare cried, shame, to Andover. They laughed at him as well they might. But I saw them exchanging glances. They were wondering. It was suspicious that Jack should have had that run of luck, and that he should lose as soon as he left that table. Millward, poor silly Millward, gaped at Tracy and stuttered that surely twas another pack we had used. I could hardly breathe. Then Andover corrected him. How did he know? No one else remembered, or thought of noticing, only he. I can see Jack now, standing there so stiffly with his head thrown up, and those blue eyes of his flashing. Do I understand you to accuse me, Belmanmoir? he said. Oh, but he was furious. Tracy never said a word. Only his eyes just flickered to my face and away again. Jack's hand was gripping my shoulder hard. I could feel his anger. Dare called out that the suggestion was preposterous, that John should cheat. Tracy asked him if the cards were his. Gad, I can hear his soft, mocking voice now. Dare went purple. You know his way, Warburton. Opened in your presence on this table, he cried. By Carstairs, smiled Tracy. It was true. But why should Tracy remember it, and none other? They stared at him, amazed. Dare turned to Jack for corroboration. He nodded. I think he never looked haughtier. You know how fond of Jack Dare was. He tried to bluster it off, tried to get control over the affair. It was to no avail. We were puppets, worked by that devil Belmanoir. One man managing that ghastly scene. He pointed out that only three of us had used that pack. Jack, Millward, and I. Jack laughed. Next you will accuse Dick, he snapped scornfully. One of you certainly, smiled Andover. Or Millward. Then everyone realized that one of us three must have marked the cards. Millward was upset, but no one suspected him. It was Jack or me. As long as I live, I shall never forget the horror of those moments. If I were exposed, it meant the end of everything between Lavinia and I. I tell you, Warburton, I would have committed any sin at that moment. Nothing would have been too black. I could not bear to lose her. You don't know what she meant to me. I can guess, sir, said the lawyer gravely. No, no, no one could imagine the depths of my love for her. I think not even Jack. I felt his hand leave my shoulder. The truth had dawned on him. I heard the way the breath hissed between his teeth as he realized. Somehow I got to my feet, clutching at the table, facing him. I don't excuse myself. I know my conduct was beyond words dastardly. I looked across at him, just said his name, as though I could scarce believe my ears. So all those watching thought. But Jack knew better. 
He knew I was imploring him to save me. He understood all that I was trying to convey to him. For an instant he stared at me. I thought, I thought, God forgive me. I prayed that he might take the blame on himself. Then he smiled. Coward though I was, when I saw that hurt, wistful little smile on his lips, I nearly blurted out the whole truth. Not quite. I suppose I was too mean-spirited for that. Jack bowed to the room, and again to Dare. He said, I owe you an apology, sir. Dare sprang forward, catching him by the shoulder, crying out that it could not be true. When Jack laughed, he fell away from him as from a, the plague, and all of them. My God, to see them drawing away, not looking at Jack, and Jack's face growing paler and harder every moment, all his friends turning their backs to him. Davenant, even Jim Davenant, walked away to the fireplace with Evans. I could not look at Jack. I dared not. I could not go to him, stand by him. I had not the right. I had to leave him there, in the middle of the room, alone. The awful hurt in his eyes made me writhe. The room was whirling round. I felt sick. I know I fell back into my chair, hiding my face. I hardly cared whether they suspected me or not. But they did not. They knew how great was the love between us, and they were not surprised that I broke down. I heard Andover's soft voice. He was telling some tale to Dare. Oh, they were well-bred, those men. They skimmed over the unpleasant little episode, ignored Jack. Jack spoke again. I could guess how bravely he was keeping a proud front. I know word for word what he said. Mr. Dare, your grace, gentlemen, my apologies for being the cause of so unpleasant an incident. Pray give me leave. They paid no heed. I heard him walk to the door, heard him open it. I could not look at him. He, he paused, and said just one word. Dick, quite softly. Heaven knows how I got to him. I know I overturned my chair. That drew Dare's attention. He said, You are not going, Dick. I shouted, Yes, at him. And then Jack took my arm, leading me out. And all, all he said was, Poor old Dick. He, he had no word of blame for me. He would not allow me to go back and tell the truth as I would have done. I, Warburton, when Jack called me to him, I could have cried it aloud. But he would not have it. He said, for Lavinia's sake. Warburton blew his nose violently. His fingers were trembling. You know what happened afterwards. You know how my father turned Jack out penniless. You know how his friends shunned him. You know my poor mother's grief, and you know that he went away. That we could not find him when my mother died. His last words to me were, Make Lavinia happy, and try to forget all this. Forget it. Heavens try as I might. I could hear nothing further of him until two months ago, when he waylaid me. Then I was half dazed at the suddenness of it. He, he grasped my hand and laughed. It was so dark I could scarce see him. I only had time to demand his address, and then he was off, galloping away over the heath. I think even then he bore no malice. 
"'He does not now,' said Warburton sharply. "'But, Master Dick, if all this is true, "'why do you not even now clear him, surely?' "'Richard turned his head slowly. "'Now I may not drag my wife's name through the mud. "'By clearing him, I ruin her.' "'Warburton could find nothing to say. "'Only after some time did he clear his throat and say that he was honoured by Carstairs's confidence. "'You are—you dwell on the part played by his grace on that evening. Surely your, shall we say, overwrought imagination magnified it?' Richard was disinterested. "'I suppose so. Maybe twas his extraordinary personality dominating me. He cannot have pulled the wires as I thought he did.' Not even Bellman War could make me act as I did. But, but at the time, I felt that he was pushing, pushing, compelling me to accuse Jack. Oh, doubtless I was mad. Warburton eyed the dejected figure compassionately. Then he seemed to harden himself and to regain some of his lost primness of manner. You are, you are determined not to accept the revenue, sir. I have not yet sunk so low, Mr. Warburton. His lordship leaves Wensham and all appertaining to it at your disposal. He would be grieved at your refusal. I will not touch it, the lawyer nodded. I confess, Mr. Carstairs, I am relieved to hear you say that. It will not be necessary again to communicate with his lordship. I think he does not desire any intercourse with his family. He finds it too painful. But he wished to be remembered to you, sir, also to her ladyship. Thank you. You could ascertain nothing of his situation. He did not confide in you. He was very reticent, sir. I think he is not unhappy. And not embittered? Certainly not that, sir. Mr. Warburton rose, plainly anxious to be gone. Reluctantly Richard followed his example. You have nothing further to tell me of him? I regret, sir. Nothing. Richard went slowly to the door and opened it. You must allow me to thank you, sir, for your goodness in undertaking what I know must have been a painful task. I am very grateful. Mr. Warburton bowed low. I beg you will not mention it, sir. Nothing I might do for the Carstairs could be aught but a pleasure. Again he bowed and the next instant was gone. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tara Mendoza Phoenix, Arizona July 2011